We're trying to describe something that is so enormous and so small at the same time. It's this abstract concept or, you know, like one of the things when I used to actually teach the writing of poetry, the very first assignment I would give to people was, all right, I want you to write the worst love poem you've ever written. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. There is an ambidextrous quality in the capacity to both be in the here and now and embrace that which is emerging at the edge of our awareness. To be grounded at the moment in what is real is itself a portal into the realms of potential. Our job while we are alive is to translate that potential into action. It can be through new permissions in art and poetry new discoveries in science, and new frontiers in every other field you choose to explore. For people who are curious, who have a sense of wonder, who want understanding or expression, or some way to connect, we are all coming online for life, to be awakened and transformed and revealed. Every person is a live portal and its energy that sometimes turns up as poetry. Join us for the Poetry of Transformation. Welcome to Portals of Perception. Our propelling inquiry centers on how we humans transform at the edge of discovery, where we skate to the end of what we know and look beyond to discover ourselves anew. Today, we are seeking to appreciate the poetry of transformation. What is it? What is poetic about transformation? What is it about life that and how life transforms itself that's poetic? So I'm going to ask my two guests to first introduce yourselves. Well, hello, Aviv and Holly. It's so great to be here with you all today. I'll jump in here because I'm thinking about portals and perception. And that reminds me of William Blake. I don't know if you were thinking about that when you were thinking about the poetry of transformation, but by way of introduction, I'm Libby Wagner. I used to say that I had a house in Seattle because I traveled all the time, but now I actually live here, especially in the past pandemic year and love the mountains and the rivers of the Pacific Northwest. My friend Owen O'Sullivan, the Irish musician, when he introduces me, says, here's my friend Libby. She's a poet with a a little consulting business on the side, which always makes me laugh because that's the way he sees the world. And so, and that is actually true. I work with organizations to help them change their language and their culture and their leadership, but I walk in the world as a poet. And when I think about your question about the uh, transformational elements of poetry or the poetry of transformation, I think because for me, you know, I, I go back to what Donald Hall said, poetry was saying the unsayable. 
And when you were introducing, you know, going to the edge of what we see, the edge of what we know, I mean, I think just by nature, poetry invites us into that process. How can we say something that actually is beyond language? And myself and other poets I know, you know, we're crazy enough to try. We're crazy enough to try to say it. Well, I would agree with everything you just said, Libby, about that crazy enough to try and that poetry at the edge there. I'm Holly Thomas, and I'm a freelance editor with a background in technical editing. And before that, my first life was as a land use and environmental planner. But for the last several years, I've been freelancing it. And so I've been working with all kinds of clients who are trying to tell their stories or businesses that are reshaping their websites and trying to get the message just right. And it's a fascinating way to engage with people because it's like, well, are you saying what you mean? And if you think you're saying what you mean, are you, is it how other people will hear it? You know, so it's like a constant mirror in my own process of creativity. I live on Whidbey Island in the Pacific Northwest, lived here for many years now. And it's a blessed place to just keep exploring what you said about the Pacific Northwest and the environment of the Pacific Northwest. I have a family of deer that comes through my yard multiple times a day. Today, they were just mowing down my landscaping once again. I've given up all, you know, it's like, have at it, folks. It's a buffet, you know, enjoy it. But there was something you said in one of your pieces, Libby, as I was researching you a little bit, because we haven't met before, but noticing. And for me, the, 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 what comes up for me in this question of what is the poetry of transformation or what comes up, what arises with that, it's there's something about that edge and noticing the capacity to notice and then this crazy impulse to try to capture it and not capture it as in to trap it, but to try to capture it in a way as to convey it. That's what arises for me is like a, that fascination and then wanting, it's not just a fascination, it's a sense that in noticing something there's energy coming in, there's light there's coming in, there's a message coming in, there's something coming in that wants to come through this and be released out into the world in some fresh way, or maybe just be released into me and transform me. But then there's this impulse to write it down so that I can share it with someone else. So all three of us, we are geographically speaking, based in the Pacific Northwest, which is one of the most poetic places on this planet, beautiful planet in terms of the everything that nature offers here. And we seem to, uh, the three of us, have a fascination with this membrane of the here and now and what's beyond. And you both are describing poetry as one of the bridges from the unmanifest to the manifest uh, realm. And so let, let me ask first, before we go deeper into the what is transformation and what is transformational, just stay a little longer with this idea of, of poetry and, and poetic. And, and let me ask, how and where do you find access to the sense that this world and all that's around us in the theater of life, that poetry is always latent everywhere, even in the most mundane moments, perhaps? How do you describe that access and where do you find that access, please? For me, I perceive it more as a question of whether or not my ears and my eyes are turned on. Because when they are, it's everywhere. Not in a way that's a flood or an overwhelm, but if I am, if my poet ears are turned on, it can be the most mundane snippet of a phrase of conversation overheard at the grocery line. 
It's just something will catch me and it might not come in as profound. It might come in as, oh, that's an interesting set of syllables, or I've never heard that expression before, or I want to write that down because there's something there. And then that particular phrase might pop in months or even years later in some completely different context. So it's very, it's more just about when am I paying attention and when am I not? And I know that if, if there's been a long stretch when I haven't been writing any poetry, it's because my ears have been switched off or they've been focused elsewhere. And if it feels like it's time to turn them back on, things just start arriving. And then the same thing with my eyes. It's just like, am I really noticing? Am I actually stopping and letting my letting that fascination happen? Or am I saying, oh, yet another gorgeous hemlock tree. Hello. And then move on. Yeah, I think the going back to the noticing and the paying attention, and I love that phrase, like paying attention, right? Like paying forth your your beingness, you know, and, and that well, I remember when I actually, I, so I went to grad school, poetry school, and I remember the first night of poetry workshop, this tiny little Irish man walked in, his name was James McCauley, and he recited a Yeats poem with tears streaming down his face. And I thought, oh, what have I gotten myself into? This is so weird. Like my whole academic life had not been anything like that. And I wish I could imitate his voice, but he looked at us, you know, the small group of 14 people in this program and said, well, you've done it now. You've said that you're going to be poets, which means you will be a raw nerve walking around in the world. And I remember thinking that was sort of a crude way to express it. But I think that, you know, I would agree with Holly that once you've turned up or turned on the awareness, you can't not see it. And I also think that it's particularly human, you know, to be living in a body that has a physical presence in the world with our senses, right? The seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, which is, you know, like what E. Cummings wrote about. And so to be fully human means I'm experiencing this world as a physical being, but also there's this, you know, this mind and this other realm and that edge of transformation that you're talking about that I think we're constantly trying to make connections. And so for me, the way I access it is by being as present as I possibly can. So deep listening, paying attention, noticing, slowing down, which is the antithesis to almost everything in our modern world. So you're describing multiple pathways or or portals in the sense of seeing and hearing, in the sense of being a raw nerve, in the sense of paying attention. And it, it occurs to me that, yes, we can discover the poetic through our senses and also through the magnifying capacity of the mind. One of the poetic elements of this world for me is this idea that the atomic structure and the galaxies, they are a reflection of each other. So it says to me that this, even the material world is organized in some way that, that rhymes, that there, are, there is a certain inner logic that reveals itself through the unfolding of life. When I contemplate, so here is an example, this for me is poetic, even though it's not something I can see with my eyes, when I contemplate the micro, microscopically discovered fact that the small particles of the atom, they can skip or jump or leap from one state to another. And I think that that is also true for us humans. 
because you're just speaking there wholly about turning on or not being turned on in your senses. And in in a minute, I'm going to ask, what is it? What is this quality of presence that turns those faculties on? Where for me, it rhymes with this appreciation that so the, the small particles, they can make a leap and we can make a leap with one invisible thought. That for me is poetic. I think it's also about a willingness, you know, because, I mean, I suppose sometimes we might be forced to transform, but I also think there's a willingness, there's a path of willingness and openness in terms of being transformed. And as you were talking, actually, I was, you know, I'm sure all of us on here would probably be self-professed word nerds, right? Like I love looking up words and and looking about, you know, where they came from and things like that. And and I was writing about and thinking about a transformation in a poem I was writing. And I decided I wanted to look up the word for the thing that happens in the cocoon. And I know that's a sometimes a tired metaphor, but the word that I found was holometabolism, which is a complete rearranging of the structure of matter inside that space. So that you know, what actually emerges is nothing like what went in and then what happened and then what what came forth from that. And I think that the thing that's really important for me to remember about poetry is it's not an intellectual exercise only. And in fact, you know, I find myself, especially when I use poetry in my work, apologizing for all the terrible English teachers everyone ever had who said, this isn't for you because you're not smart enough. And because I don't believe that. And because it's a human, real, live experience with the body and the mind and the spirit and the, all the things. So it's completely about transformation. I absolutely agree. And life is poignant. And if you have the ability to slow down enough to let yourself feel that, you know, for in some people it gives rise to music, and some people it gives rise to acts of kindness. It may give rise to dance. It gives rise to some kind of expression of the something of that, which is one of the mysteries of being human. And poetry is one of those attempts to embrace that poignancy and do something with it, among other things. I mean, for me, it's also a fascination with science. You know, what you were bringing up, Aviv, is like, If I am way too caught up in my 3D mindset and, you know, my egoic self and my day-to-day and taking all that way too seriously, if I stop and think about photosynthesis for a while and then get to the point where I'm no longer thinking about it and I'm just awestruck by it. In other words, I've gotten past, you know, whatever the formula is and I'm just appreciating the miracle of the fact that photosynthesis even happens. Or if I look at, um, I love quantum mechanics, you know, and if I'm reading a well-written article about quantum mechanics that really gets into the weird of it, like that brings me back to this sense of just, we really have no idea what's going on here. And we get glimpses once in a while and we're blessed with those glimpses. And part of what we're here to do is be those sensory beings on the outpost, bringing that information back for the rest of humanity. But it's fascination and it's poignancy and it's being awestruck, and then also sometimes just hearing something that tickles our fancy in some way and going with that. I mean, it's all of it. It's just being that sensory organism out there on the frontier. What are your deepest beliefs and, and understanding of what you describe as, as being on with your hearing, with your seeing, with your presence, being a runner? What is this experience that you're describing in this way? 
Well, one thing I'd love to say, and I really appreciated what Holly was saying about science, is I think one of the modern myths that we must reject is that the artist and the scientist are hanging out at different cocktail parties. Because actually, we're very fine bedfellows. And I think that, you know, when we began to separate these things out, like even just in, I don't know if we want to go down this road, but, you know, even just in like modern education practices, oh, you're good at math, you go this way. Oh, you're good at art, you go that way. And so I think, you know, a conversation like this is an attempt to like collect and connect and integrate some of these ideas back together. Some of the most fun I have in my work is working with world-class scientists, Nobel Prize winners, who are trying to solve the biggest science questions of the world, and I give them William Stafford's Traveling Through the Dark, which has a moral dilemma at the center of it. And at first, when they look at it and they think, who is this woman? And I, you know, I have to sort of like armor myself up, right? And, but, but when I, I say, just, I want you to go in here. I want you to take a look. If there's nothing there for you, fine. Tell me why there's nothing there. But if there is something there, then I want to know why and to make the invitation. So I think the first thing is like this turned on state that you're talking about is first of all, being willing to dispel some of the myths that we have about poetry, our relationship to poetry, our, you know, how, how the, you know, notion of science and art are not you know, connected in some way because it's bogus. And I think this, the second thing I would say about being, you know, like turned on and opened up and tuned in. And I like to talk about awareness. Like it has a little dial, you know, like an old school radio dial. Right. And I think, you know, all art is about longing, a desire, you know, to cross over, to express like Holly was talking about, to dance it out or paint it or create a garden or whatever it is. It's just, it's about this longing we have, which, you know, can be a holy longing and it can be a really painful longing. But I think that that's, you know, entering into that state of being on that edge of that threshold, that horizon that you were talking about, Aviv, that that's part of the tuning in or turning on to, you know, what could be transformational about poetry and other kinds of art or discovery. I love what you brought in about the science unifying them because you're right. They're never separate. And if you actually, if you read some of the things that some of our greatest scientists have said, you know, it's clear they're speaking. I mean, they're, they're motivated by capacity for not capacity. They're motivated by wonder Mm -hmm. and they have certain aptitudes that take them down a certain path, but it's still driven by wonder. And if they lose that, they end up not being very effective at what they're doing. But if they're driven by that, they keep going, what is that next frontier frontier? And often they write about it in very poetic terms. Mm -hmm. And so it's that, I'm not sure where wonder comes from. Like, what is that nudge that says to me, you've kind of gone numb. Do you need to be numb now because you've just got to book through a bunch of stuff? Or is it time to switch something back on? Where does that awareness come from? Well, it comes from some aspect of self that is larger. I mean, I believe that is larger from the ego. But once in a while, it comes from a nudge from the the outside. You know, everything in quotes because it's all in, in relative terms. Sometimes I'll just, something will just wake me up. But what it's waking up is that capacity for wonder. And I'm lucky for me that it's never deeply asleep. I mean, it's always, it's right there. If I'm, unless I'm sound asleep in the middle of the bed, if something happens that, you know, I'm likely to just, if nothing else, just kind of overreact to it sometimes. I mean, I'm one of those people who will just cry at the drop of a hat. If I see an act of kindness or 
even just thinking about it now, I can feel it rising in me. It's like it's that sensitivity, which I wouldn't trade for anything. In other people, it may manifest as a very different thing. But it, for me, it comes down to wonder. And English is so amazing because it has all these tricky words that are both nouns and verbs, you know, and they have so much like the word wonder. I'm wondering about something or I have a capacity for wonder. It's like it's it seems like such a simple, straightforward on the surface thing, but it's not. It's a gateway. It's a portal to this whole aspect of what it is to be alive that we use this little word as a shorthand for but just that one word is like mind-blowing to me if you really spend time with and engage which i've never done before this is the kind an example of the kind of thing i was alluding to before about why i love conversations like this because i don't know what i think about some things until i have a chance to reflect on them i've never sat down with the word wonder and asked it what it wants to show me so you are describing the nudge of wonder as the propelling force of science, the discovery of science, and Libby is discovering the, the sense of longing that you're saying is at the foundation of, of all arts, perhaps. And part of the way that I experience both of those uh, arising natures in our humanness, that what is so deeply central to being alive in the fuller sense is that any space, any ecology, any circumstance we enter, if we are truly fully alive, when we are truly fully alive, we seem to be attuned to discover and find the energy, the latent, the energy potential in that space and somehow to become conduit to unlock, to unleash that energy from the realms of potential such that it becomes kinetic. And poetry is one way to turn the potential into kinetic, the energy potential into something that moves, that propels, that motivates others. You know, you reminded me of something, and I hope it's pulling at a particular thread, but it popped into my head and I wanted to share it because it was something, you know, like Holly was saying, you know, having a conversation then discovering yourself my friend david white says you know like you surprised you're surprised to hear yourself say something like oh you know and but this person i was talking with said that all creativity must come from a place of neutrality and i thought that was so fascinating because you know i think i've always felt like it had to come from a place of i don't know something positive right and but what she was really saying was you know if we're not in this completely present moment, we don't have access to the whole range and, you know, and really the whole range of feelings, which makes us human and differentiates us. Right. And so that sense of, okay, well, I'm here, I'm alive. We all want this aliveness. And I'm, I get really fascinated by all the things that try to keep us from the aliveness that can take up a lot of my time, you know, thinking about those things. But I think when we're in that space of aliveness and we're fully present to it, then for me anyway, I experienced something like, you know, what I feel like a name dropper today. Anyway, what Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in Big Magic, which is that genius in, comes to visit you. And it, set, it gives you that phrase, that word, that image, that sound, that song. And it, but if you're not listening, it moves on to the next person. It just it moves on. And so for me, that deep listening, that aliveness, that sense of neutrality, if I'm freaked out about something or super excited about something, I'm actually not listening that well. Can you try to 
open up further how you appreciate this idea of neutrality and what might be the practice of stepping into that sense of open neutrality such that you are available to the full range, the full spectrum of what may want to work its way through you? I mean, I'll share and I'd love to hear what Holly, you know, also does. I mean, for me, so a few months ago, you know, feeling effects in the way I experienced, you know, many gifts from the pandemic and quarantine time and other sorts of things that had to do with isolation and and being very careful about how I ingested news and information and things like that. You know, I found myself when I was sitting down for my own writing practice, like having to wade through all this detritus of, you know, worry, anxious, self-doubt, all the things that show up, you know, when I'm getting ready to be honest about anything. And so for me, you know, the, the process of removing that, I don't know how to describe it other than detritus, you know, muddy, mucky, foggy stuff that keeps me from having that clear perception and then is to get to a place of neutrality. So it might be a particular practice, meditation, walking, gardening, being in the natural world for me is especially like my phrase is go to the woods. And so, you know, because that for me is literally and metaphorically grounding. And so if I'm grounded, then I hear, then I see, then I get to have, I don't know, it feels like a kind of a pure connection to my own creativity, my own, I don't know how to just, yeah, it's one of those indescribable things, but I don't know. How about you, Holly? Yesterday, I'm smiling a bit because yesterday I was having such a tough time getting grounded that I I just had to go find a tree. I just, you know, and my natural state tends to be somewhat ungrounded anyway, more expanded, but not necessarily down in the earth. And so when I actually notice that I'm not grounded, it's like, okay, I just need to go really find a tree. And there's a lot of that. There's, and you're saying about the, the stimulation of our modern quote unquote life and this past year the various inputs that can interfere with that sense of presence are many. And I need quiet time. I need time outdoors. More than anything else for me, I feel like I just need to remember more about what I am, like what we are as people. So it can happen anywhere, but I have to remember that we're not, that we're more than these beings who are running around trying to get everything right and trying yes. to protect ourselves. And when I remember that, which isn't usually that hard, but when I actually get the impulse from the muse or or whatever to remember that, then that opens a door that expands me back out into awareness. And I can be, well, one of my favorite poems was I was sitting in a Starbucks on Queen Anne, you know, and I just overheard a snippet of conversation. And I remember making the conscious choice at that moment, am I going to write what just came to me? Or am I just going to appreciate the experience and get on with my business? And I decided to write it out, which I don't always do. But it was inspired by, the, by overheard snippets of conversation in a Starbucks. So it can happen anywhere. It's just whether I'm remembering to honor not only what I am, but it's often if I'm around other people, if I, am I really honoring what they are to the extent that I even know what they are? I mean, you know, but just remembering that there's, there's so much more going on there than what I might see on the surface. And then the smallest gesture or expression might inspire me to just like write down a phrase that may or may not ever turn into a poem. But at least in that moment, it means that something happened that I noticed that transformed something in me in that moment. And whether it ever makes it onto the page or not, it's not secondary because I love poetry, but it's a separate, it's a related, but it's a different thing. 
transformation has already happened. And it's a question of, am I going to try to capture it in a way that might actually be able to bring that to somebody else? So there is an ambidextrous quality in your describing both the, the capacity to be in the here and now and to, and at the same time, embracing that which is beyond the here and now, all at the same time. And Libby, you're describing the part of the access and the capacity is to do with being honest. And there is in that the sense, getting grounded in what is, in what is real for you in the moment is itself a portal into the realms of potential, whether it becomes poetic or not. Absolutely. What else would you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think also that, you know, I'm thinking of, of the relationship between practice and improv and discipline. And, you know, Mary Oliver said, you know, if you want to write poetry, it's a little bit like Romeo and Juliet and somebody needs to show up at the window or there ain't going to be no romance, you know. And so, you know, and I think, you know, Holly, you said something, I think you said something before, you know, I mean, every once in a while, life like smacks you upside the head, right? Grabs you by the shoulders and says, pay attention. But mostly it's a lot more subtle than that. And so, you know, for those people, I think, and I say that because I actually think we're all this way, but there's lots of reasons why we don't honor it. But so for those people who are curious, who have that sense of wonder, who want you know, either understanding or expression or, or some way to, and for me, it's about connecting, you know, there's that Pablo Neruda poem called On Poesia that where he talks about how like you go every night, you go looking for yourself, looking for yourself, looking for yourself, and you wake up in the morning and there's the fishing net that you cast out. And what have you caught yourself? And so we're all trying to connect, to cast that net out, to connect, to catch something. But actually, there we are. And so I think that, you know, the desire for aliveness, wonder, curiosity is actually about the desire to know myself, to know my place in the world, to know how I'm separate from, connected to, none of the above. You know? And I think art is one way. And, but I mean, like when I think about that, like scientific experiment to me, who, a person who's not a scientist, like that is also art because it's taking the thing you've been given and creating something new from it is transformation on about 17 levels, if that makes any sense. One of the framings that I have used in recent years to get the attention of senior leaders and senior teams with the, where I do the consulting work is that I propose the following construct, which is that if you came into the workforce in the 80s or the 90s, you essentially were hired to do one job, but that today you are, whatever you're hired for, you're hired to do three jobs all at the same time. And I propose to them that therefore anybody working for them, in fact, anyone showing up in any organically emerging and a live system, they're forever needing to attend to three jobs. So job one is the job you're formally hired to do the work. Job two, in most circumstances, is to transform the work. So it, the work can be done differently, better, at a higher quality, more effectively, and so on. And then I propose that there is a third job, and job three is to transform 
yourself. Because if you are to unlock and, and unleash the greatest potential that's available for you in job one and two, you must be doing job three. So that's just my way of getting people's attention of how to move in a way, gain permission. It's Libby, like you were describing that you need to put all the armory to lead people into the space you're going to lead them into. This is sometime how I will make an opening that will essentially, this is me creating my own license to lead them for the rest of the day into a transformational experience because, and there was the logic on the front end. But then I ask, why is that the case? And sometimes people will too quickly explain that it's simply because we live in a, in a time we are experiencing these transformational technologies. And I say, and I propose that technological changes, they are there are more byproducts or symptoms or expressions rather than the cause itself. And I propose the following, where I can, I propose the following metaphor or poetic story. What if we imagine that this beautiful place we call Earth and ourselves within it, that we are, as we whooshing through space, we have entered a new zone in the universe where life is awakened to its own awakening. And that because of that, we are experiencing this idea of uh, disruptive changes on every aspect, in every aspect. This is why we are seeing crumbling institutions and organizations, because we have come through an epoch where life and the theater of life was more structured and a repetition of what was fashion before, and then the, the known names, the inspiring figures, were those that shaped the change. But what we have actually seen in the arc, the, the arc of the two or 3,000 years, or if you like to tell the 400 years or the last 60 years, certainly, whatever way we look at this arc of, and the idea that we are each person is now not just they have their own YouTube channel, so to speak, we are all coming online for life to be awake and transformed and revealed through every person. That is, every person is a live portal. So that's partly how I rationalize in my own logic, my own mythology, if you like, how to think into the idea that I wake up every morning and I have permission to discover a new version of myself because I look through the, the window and I see the same trees that I saw there yesterday, but we are actually together showing up in a zone that's new in the universe and that conductive zone of possibility provides us access to new potential and our job when we are alive is to translate that potential. And for me, that is expressed with new discoveries in science, new permissions in art and poetry, and new every other frontier that you choose to explore. That's how I sense into the large scale of the realm of potential, the realms of potential. I think, you know, kind of underneath the, the layers of what you're sharing there, a few things emerge for me. I mean, one is the question, the conversation about poetry as poetry as the personal and poetry as the political. And I and I mean political in the grandest sense, you know, the body of people, right? Of the collective. 
And when we talk about transformation and transformational times, that there are, you know, leaders out there on the edges, pushing at the edges, right? Before we, you know, break through to that something or, you know, whatever. And, you know, in organizational life, we like to call it innovation because it's, it's a sanitized word. And, but what we really mean is we mean creativity, we mean artistry, we mean discovery, we mean wonder, you know, those kinds of things. And I remember once, even though it was a hierarchical expression that I had this poetry teacher who said, you know, in the world of, you know, transformation, there were philosophers, then there were poets, and then everyone else came after that. And I don't know if it was true or not, she was teaching poetry, right? But the idea that, you know, the closer we are to like breaking through or that whatever happens before the whooshing, you know, to this different kind of level is willing to be inside the beautiful questions that are not easily answered. And that that's partly what we do when we are trying to create something from nothing. We're taking that thread or that little phrase that we hear or that image or whatever that is and we say, okay, well, here's the portal through which we open up this, you know, new horizon. And so it's a personal journey, but it's also a political journey. I mean, I, you know, when Amanda Gorman did the poem on the, you know, on the steps for the inauguration and everyone in the room was like, oh my gosh, poetry, how cool, poetry, you know? And I always have to go, <clears throat> just, you know, like, Yes. And like, why does it, why is it, oh, it's, it's surprising, you know? And, but, you know, part of that was you know, an experience for the world really to hear an expression, you know, from someone who was speaking on behalf of all these different groups of people from her own private experience. You know, sometimes poetry is big and loud and transformational like that. Sometimes it's very quiet and it's in my garden or, you know, it's in Holly's place on Whidbey. But it's both, it's that tension, I think, also between the personal and political. For me, what I'm, phrase that keeps coming to me, and this is a phrase that often comes to me, is call and response. And to me, life is, what you're saying about life and this moving into a new place in the universe, in a sense, I mean, that's how I see it. And life to me is alive. You know, life is not a dead concept. It's, and this, I didn't used to think about it that way. You know, I didn't used to feel it, but, it, you know, as I continue to evolve, new things take on new meanings or new facets of things appear to me. And that's one of them that I've been really aware of over the last several months is like life is, is like a companion. It's like a being, it's like a lover. I mean, it's like this elemental presence that is showing up and helping me answer my question of I've always felt that life is call and response, but it was kind of a theoretical notion that would sometimes have a poetic expression, you know, it's like, and now it's like, no, it, the call is coming from life, which is itself coming from who knows what, you know, but in this planet right now, it feels to me as if that's every single nanosecond is a call of some kind, but, and life everywhere as we, and in this sense, I mean, the forms that life takes, you know, the plants, the trees, the human beings, the actions, the decisions, they're all responses. But when I'm aware of that, when I tune into that, for me, that's when I feel as if the portal is really opening. Like when I, in a sense, it's like saying, I see you life. I see what you're up to. What can I say of you? Or what can I, how can I convey some aspect of you in a way that might land in someone else's heart. It's just this, 
you know, call and response. And to me, one of the most amazing things about being human is that we have the capacity to recognize that. And one of the saddest things about being human is so many people, they don't, you know, they miss that. I have this motif, maybe that's the word for it, that often comes up when I'm meditating or when I'm just paying attention to anything. I'll look at, I'm intrigued by structures and patterns and textures, especially in nature. And you can see a a tree in the fall that's turning some gorgeous color. And people look at it and they appreciate it and go, oh, isn't that lovely? But sometimes I'll, I'll just play a game with myself and I'll say, if that were the only one of those trees in the world, or mm-hmm. so maybe there were two of them, you know, people would be lining up for miles and miles and miles for the privilege of just seeing that scarlet leaf before it fell. You know, and you can do that with anything. You can do that with anything. And yet, because it's so abundant, life is so profligate, it's everywhere, we can become a little bit numb to our appreciation of the the craziness, you know, the craziness that it even happens, you know? So that's part of where I'm coming from. And when I think of what you were getting to, Aviv, and, you know, there's the political and there's the, like all the different agendas. I don't mean agendas. That's not the word I'm trying to get at. There's the passion. There's the passion that motivates. And then when you bring it in, into the business world where so much is happening, if we ignite that passion, I think it immediately connects people to that passion of life and whatever, you know, same thing with scientists, you know, the scientists are motivated by a passion to discover something and poets are motivated by a passion to just to try to capture or express or release something. Every artist is motivated by some kind of passion as our children, as is any living life form. So that's none of this is really coming through an intellectually coherent package, but this is some of the energy that I tap into that sometimes shows up as poetry. It's call and response, and it's life as a living being. The, the game you play with your mind about if this was the only tree in the world, you magnify value. It's the capacity to pull back from the forever diluting nature of the busyness of life and the everything else that, that encroaches on the senses and, and on one's attention and, and presence of mind. So that is a practice, that is a discipline, that is a way of calling yourself to be present here and now to the fullness of something. It it alerts me yet again that so much of what you are, both of you are describing, there are many, many small practices that are part of the the living in the day-to-day to be present to life such that, I mean, you talked earlier about and you talk now about the, the changing of the, the, the colors of, of the tree. So right there, the, the being present to the seasons. And for me, part of where I don't call myself a poet, but I suppose if I was to try to access what is the poetic point of view, the poetic vantage point, one of the capacities I, I hear in what you are describing is perhaps we can call it the hydraulic lift of poetry. It's the capacity to soar, to see something from above, the the bird-eye view, and then the capacity to move so close in to the microscopic view to enable you to magnify something so small, to be so profoundly large to the exclusion of all else, that move from the very small to the very large, that to me is, is perhaps part of the, the hydraulic lift of poetry. You are able to move both directions in, and in all other directions. Okay, so here's a sticky note that's right on my computer here, and it says, nothing is too small to contain the whole world. 
And I read that in an interview and I put it here because exactly what you're saying is that that sort of zooming in and zooming out and, you know, the seasonality of like, it's the best metaphor ever, right? The, the metaphor of seasonality, but the, the notion of, you know, how we, it's the metaphor, right? When I said at the beginning, you know, we're trying to say the unsayable and we're crazy enough to try to go for it. You know, when we're at the edge of those portals, the edge of reason, the edge of logic, the edge of the stories we've already told, or, you know, we have to first, it's trust, faith, I don't know what you want to call it to go on in there. And then I think that it's about, all right, well, we're trying to describe something that is so enormous and so small at the same time. It's this abstract concept or, you know, like one of the things when I used to actually teach the writing of poetry, the very first assignment I would give to people was, all right, I want you to write the worst love poem you've ever written. And it's a bit of a, you know, it's a trick. By the way, Aviv, you're totally a poet. So we're having a separate podcast on that. But so it's like the emotion of love, you know, to love one's partner or child or country or whatever. Like it's completely inexpressible. Like you can't do it. So it comes out sounding like a Hallmark card. It's, It's awful. So that's the assignment. Like say the thing that's the hardest thing to say. And that's why we have to go to metaphor and season and the things that maybe we can perceive with our senses, because then we can get close. And Mary Oliver was, Oliver was the master of that, right? You read along in her poem. She's like, you're out walking with the dog. You're smelling the skunk cabbage. And then boom, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's not what this was about. you know? And she was a master of it and so accessible, which is why she was so beloved and, and is still. I, you mentioned Mary Oliver, so I'm off, you know, I'm sort of reveling in the world in of my beloved Mary Oliver poems here and, and that presence she had. But my favorite thing about her work was that she would take you along and then whammo. And what I wanted to mention was that sometimes the wham, the message comes from a source that I don't know what it is. I'll call it source. In terms of practices, one of the practices for me is listening. And it's not only listening for what I'm going to hear other people say that might give me snippets of conversation, but it's deep listening inside because sometimes I get a message. And the message will often end up being the last line or part of the last stanza of what will eventually be a poem. And I know what it feels like when I get those. And I'm not someone who is so clear audience that I'm getting communications like that all the time. I mean, I know there are people who do, but no. So when I get something like that, it's like, okay, then. So that's another practice. And I'd be curious, Libby, as to whether that happens with you as well sometimes, where you just, something shows up and you go, okay. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I have, because I'm superstitious this way, right? But I have receipts, napkins, scraps (laughs) of paper, crap, all you know, where I write it down as quick as I can, because I know, I know if I don't honor it right then, it's gone. It's just gone. And it will be like, oh yeah, I had that really cool line or I had that really cool image or that thought that came to me or whatever. And so it's about like honoring when the imaginative, poetic, artistic impulse is in that conversation with you. I love the idea of call and response. I'm going to have to like riff on that or something, but like, that's the call. And if I don't respond, then I, you know, I give it up. And I think, you know, like when you look at artists who 
you know, live tortured lives and are, you know, commit suicide and all that kind of thing. I mean, I realize that's, a, again, another topic, but I think it's because, A, we get so addicted to the idea that we're going to get it. And where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where's the thing? Where's the thing? Where's the brilliance? And, and so that we get so amped up, we cannot be in that place of neutrality, that it's just open and realizing that it's like a miracle when you get it. Like, I think everyone can get it, but I think it's still, it's miraculous. It's like, I planted this little tiny squash plant out in my backyard garden. And it, and like, I don't even, I mean, like, I know there's a scientific explanation, but how did it get so massive in a week? Like, it's like, I want to have, you know, what is that stop, stop, photography or whatever, like in the middle of the night, that's like viewing my squash plant. How does that happen? It's miraculous. I don't know how to describe it, but I think that getting the message, the calling, whatever it is, I mean, it's again, like it sounds so corny when we try to describe it because it's that thing that's beyond language again. So you're again bringing the the practice of uh, neutrality. And Holly, you spoke of um, listening that when you describe, I hear the practice of listening to yourself, listening, and perhaps there is even a third layer of listening to yourself, listening to your listening, perhaps, <laughs> where, where some of the call and response theater can begin to happen in, that, in the multidimensionality of that experience, where you witness the witnessing you, right? Yes, yes. And then that is all... That can all be wonderful and transcendent, and sometimes it can be as confusing as can be. And then as a poet, the fact that I'm also a professional editor adds a whole other level of like, you know, how do I keep that part out of it until the impulse has been put on the page? And then how do I craft it into something that is that has that life, a better version, as opposed to taking the life out of it in the process of editing it? So that, but so there's the listening, there's a listening, and then there's the sculpting. And then there's the over-polishing, you know, knowing when like, okay, the fact that that might be a little bit of a rough edge is perfect as opposed to, no, got to smooth it out, got to smooth it out. So I'm, I, there I was kind of slipping into the practice of the refinement of like the craft as opposed to where it originally comes from. But sometimes knowing what I'm listening to and where I am on that spectrum can itself get quite confusing. At that point, I usually just have to put it down, step away, come back in a month, come back in six months, come back in two years, whatever, and look at it again and say, okay, what does it want to be now? Which brings up a other question that we could get into or not get into through so many different directions. The question of who is it that I'm capturing in the poem? And as I change, as I go back through my work, does the work change with me? Or do I leave it as a record of who I was then? Well, do you want to answer your own question? It's it. Yes, I can. Or would you like me to make it more complex even and overlay something else into it? Oh, go ahead. Feel free. <laughs> well, so while you contemplate your own question, one of the threads that, that seems to be revealing through the conversation, because you spoke at the beginning about metamorphosis and Libby spoke about the caterpillar. And so we, we, there is something, there, there is this thread that, that appears through that. Because if I held a little rock in my palm. Well, that rock already has arrived and met its destiny in the sense that I could probably hold it for 10,000 years or longer and it will not change unless it is exposed to tremendous heat or other shape-shifting power. So what are we saying here? We are describing that 
part of the inner anatomy of transformation relates to or is apparent at the convergence of different octaves. In nature, you describe it as being exposed to the elements. So even the dry piece of wood, when it is exposed to fire, it will go through its transformation where the rock perhaps would not unless there is tremendous heat. What are we saying? We're saying that in natural processes and in ourselves, transformation is emergent when different octaves, when different realms, with different levels of process seem to be able to find each other in one space in a unifying crucible that allows them, allows that process to be revealed. And to me, when you are describing the listening to yourself listening, you are introducing in the babushkas, the Russian dolls that you are on the inside, you are creating the inner space where that transformational process can arise. And I'm suggesting in this imagery that for there to be, for transformation to be allowed, typically, or my observation is you need to have three levels or three octaves at play. This is why earlier I talked about you do the work, you transform the work, you transform yourself. It's the same is true in relationship. If we want to develop sustained relationships, well, there is the relationship that wants to be sustained. Then if it is to be sustained, we have to continue to evolve and transform that relationship because nothing is static. But to actually be engaged in a transformational relationship, we each need to continually be transformed on the inside or else we cannot engage in a transformational way. Right there is the three octaves. So that's what I hear when you describe the three levels of listening in your process. I promised I will make it a little more complex and compound. So uh, play jazz with that, please. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, the other ingredient is time transformation. Because when I putting my book together, I was drawing on poems that I'd written 20 years ago and poems that I'd written the year before. And one of the decisions, I choices I needed to make with each poem was who am I showing the world in this poem and who do I want to show the world in this poem, which is, you know, very, I totally acknowledged. There's definitely an egoic piece of this, you know, putting work out into the world. Am I, but also asking the work itself, is there something new that wants to come in here? Or is it important to let this one be as it was, even if I'm no longer the person who would write that poem, even if my, and I'm speaking mostly of the you know, poems that have to do with spiritual exploration of some kind. So if my understanding has matured or evolved or shifted, how do I engage with the, the, the transformation that was happening then, as opposed to all the transformation that, that may have happened subsequent to that? What do I put out there in the world? And so that adds another level of listening and ego management and craft you know, because there's also levels like, okay, I may be changing the poem fundamentally, but it's going to be a better poem. Well, according to what criteria, you know, what criteria am I? And for me, so much of it is intuitive. It's by ear and it's intuitive as well as language arts. So all of that, everything you're talking about comes in. And some of the poems, I wouldn't say this for all of my poems necessarily, but some poems themselves are living beings. That's how they seem to be to me. And I don't mean, you know, I see them the way I see a human being, but I mean, there's a live transmission that feels like it, the poem was a gift and it wants to be shared. And my job is to not mess it up. And 
if it was a gift 15 years ago, but I would no longer see things that way, is it still, I have to really tune into it and say, okay, is it important to leave this one expressing the version of me, you know, the heart and the soul and the body that it came through then, is that what needs to go out into the world? Or am I trying to show, and here's the ego part, am I trying to show how much I've grown since then? You know, I mean, like all these different factors can come into play. And, and uh, so, yeah, it can get, it gets, I mean, it can, sometimes it can be, I had one three-line poem, three-line poem that went through probably a thousand different iterations, just like who, and it was really just a confrontation, like, who am I trying to be in these words? What am I trying to present myself at, as in these, and why? And I never was satisfied. I, I just, I never answered the question. So it can be as... You know, it can be as intense as that. Yeah. So, you know, when is it about me? When is it about a message for the world? When is it about just an observation that's in beautiful language that might move someone to observe more themselves? I mean, it's like poetry covers everything. There are a couple of things that come up for me as Holly was sharing and mentioned to you before, Aviv, the work I'm doing with two other artists called The Studio. And we created this model. And again, you know, it's not that it's rocket science to bring that metaphor in here, but we, what we did was we looked at how art making has a process that involves all these things that we've been talking about today. And we, and we said, okay, well, can we create a model for this so that we can see how art making is actually in everything? And so we came up with this thing called the circle of artistry and it has, you know, kind of elements, phases, whatever it's iterative. So, you know, and Holly, as you were like gesticulating with the circle here, I was like, wow, you know, but there's the, you know, there's the impulse, the idea of, okay, I I want to create something or I have a question or I have a niggle or I got smacked upside the head or whatever. There's an initiation first of the creative process. Then there's the actual creation. So now we're in it and we are bringing everything we have to bear on it. And if we're good, this is our opinion anyway, we don't begin editing yet. Yeah. Because if we edit too soon, it involves all those things that Holly's talking about, the ego and the worrying about what other people think and you know like and it interrupts the creative process. That sort of like pure space of creating something from nothing. And then, then is refinement. Once we move out of that, then is refinement. And then we have two things that happen after that, which is offering, giving it out to the world, and then responding to what they say to us in response. And what's interesting about that is that I remember, again, you know, being a student of my own work, my own poetry, my own process. And, you know, I joke around and say, you know, like I went to MFA school, then it took me 20 years to get over it. And I don't, I value what I experienced, right? I'm grateful I did it. And I also had to unlearn a whole bunch of things. But one thing that was really important to me as an artist was there is a difference, I think, between the space where you are actually creating and revisiting and refining And then when you decide it leaves you, then it's not yours anymore. And so, you know, the idea of like, do we keep a poem or a piece of art that was reflective of our younger self, our younger psyche, our younger consciousness, whatever that is. I mean, I think it depends. I think we have to, I think we actually have to step back about six steps 
And then we become the critic, the art critic, the poetry critic, the, the editor or whatever. And we look at it and we say, well, does this have a place in my world, my world of art, my world of, of things I've created? Or is this something that I needed to do because it transformed me into the person I am becoming? And so it was a point along the way, but I'm not putting it in the book. Doesn't need to be in the book. And so I think those are like such different questions, you know, in terms of like, but all of them transformational and transformative by nature. Absolutely. I also, I wanted to just something you said, Libby, I wanted to underscore also, I, I everything you just said was, yeah, but also that the creation is happening all the time. I, it pains me whenever I hear people say they're not creative. And what I, my shorthand response to them is usually is, have you ever solved a problem? I think all of you, you know, I feel like, like if you're a parent, you are by definition creative. You, but people have this, this concept that they think creative means artist, you know, or musician or poet. And so they just have this limit that they put on their self-concept that I think is so unfortunate. So what you're describing, Libby, I think it's, it's so important to get that understanding and to, and also what you were saying earlier about that, you know, how unfortunate it is that we have this, we've separated education into these two separate tracks, you know, we've got art, we've got science as if they're not different facets of the same impulse. So thank you for your work on that. That's yeah. Well, so let me ask you both, does it feel on to share any piece of writing? And if yes, please. Yeah. I, I, Holly, you go first. I'd love to hear a piece from you. I'm going to share as you can imagine, I've been, I was dancing around over the last few days, like if I share a poem, which one does it want to be? And different ones were popping up. <laughs> but I'm going to share the title poem from my book. And I'll explain why afterwards, because it relates to this question of which of at what point in time in one's own evolution as a poet, uh, do you just sort of say, OK, that one's done. That one's final. The book is called Pluck Another Apple Eve and Finish It. Great title, by the way. <laughs> And more about that after I share the poem. The poem title is Gloria Mundi. On this otherwise undistinguished evening, a man at the garage collects money in a four by five booth with a rickety heater. His accented, thank you, passed across gloved hands. A child paws the velour of a pup's ear, wrestling in an uncoordinated tangle. Hatchlings, somewhere off the Kona coast, Porpoises are racing for the hell of it. Who knows? They could all be God. Something mightily bare-skinned and brilliant, as like to us as the David to the marble that waited for so long hovers in the world. Pluck another apple, Eve, and finish it. We are all promises, watching to see how we will keep ourselves. Lovely. Well, oh, thank you. So that poem, that line, that last stanza, pluck another apple eve and finish it. We are all promises watching to see how we will keep ourselves. Landed in my mind in the middle of a workshop, a week-long workshop on out-of-body experiences sponsored by the Robert Monroe Institute that I attended at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in celebration of my 50th birthday. Okay. So the whole week had been about expanding and experiencing other states of consciousness. So that just, it came, it just like pluck another apple. You know, I heard it and went, write that down. And then I wrote the rest of the poem to go with it. 
Now, what has shifted over time is the question, who knows, they could all be God. To me now, I wouldn't write it that way. But at that time, that was a big opening for me to just sort of see like, oh, it could be everywhere. You know, well, now I take it as a given that it's everywhere. But back then, that was a big step for me. So that was one where I just said, who do I want to be in this poem? I said, no, this one wants to be as it was. This one really wants to be as it was because it's still alive. There's still that message. Trust it. Let it be. And then it ended up being, you know, it's still one of my favorite poems. And and when I share it with other people, I can see the effect that it has on an audience. They just sort of go, you know, women, of course, totally love to pluck another apple, even finish it. But also that just the whole thing does whatever it's going to do. But for some people, it seems to really strike a note. They go, okay, that's, and that one wasn't really a struggle because I loved it as it was, but that's an example of that kind of engagement. And also that kind of, sometimes it just comes to you and you're so right, Libby. Like if you don't write it down, it's going to find someone else. Yeah. I love that poem. Thank you for reading it. And I hadn't read it yet, although, you know, it's like best book title ever. And, but now I have to share a poem that I was thinking about sharing because the poems end in a similar way. And that just blows me away, actually, when I think about it. But before I read that, I just, I want to say, you know, like, because I think you're on to something here that the way that I've always, see, I think what we do is, specifically poets, not that it doesn't happen with others, but I think this will make sense to both of you. So if I live this fully human, alive life, open, aware, tuned in, whatever we want, however we want to describe that. And then I decide that I'm going to write the capital T truth as much as I possibly can. Then what happens is it transcends my little life. It transcends the little eye and becomes the big eye, which is why when you have a line like that or an image that someone can recognize, it's not about you anymore. But the thing that's tricky about the creative process for me and for many others, I think, is if I try to write the great American novel or the best poem ever or whatever, I don't get to the truth of of that thing that will transcend me. And, and I feel like, you know, that's why sometimes we can look at a poem maybe we wrote in a particular period of time and say, you know what, no, it's okay, because that actually isn't about me anymore. It's about, you know, the truth telling I was trying to get at, you know, from, from my experience as a human being. So I feel like, like that's kind of part of what I experience when I hear your poem. So I'll share this one and I'll say a couple words about it. And then, you know, it would be fun to hear Aviv's sort of like take on, you know, these two that we've um, brought. So this one is called Threshold. And, you know, I'm obsessed with thresholds because you're, you're no longer, but you're not yet. And so that liminal space for me is endlessly fascinating. It's kind of like moons. I can't get enough of either of those images or ideas. And there's the only thing I would say is that like, so I use the word love in it. And that, and what I'm hoping when people hear it is that it's the biggest expansion of all that you, when you think about, about that. And I also feel like this is more of a, like, someone hits you in the side of the head kind of 
experience with the creative process. So threshold, it's not the sort of thing you plan for. Falling to your knees in the name of a love which you may never recover. But while you're down there, you might as well pray for something other than what you thought you wanted or deserved, maybe grace or mercy, maybe a small sliver of light at the top of the tiny window lined with blackbirds and crows. You think you know what it will take to rise, but here's where things go. The bow makes music seem easy across the strings, but it takes years to get just the right touch, just the right angle of elbow and wrist. Just then you realize how impossible this might be. The phenomenology of crossing over and all the things it takes to learn to love a love that cracks you open like this again and again. You make a promise to yourself, and for once, it holds you to it. For once, it sets you free. We could do this all day. I think think we've got poems that want to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I enjoy these last few minutes receding here to the background and being in the presence of that uh, beautiful, beautiful poems, each on its own. And there is something to be said about poems are never one in comparison to another because each is a universe unto itself as each life is. Here is what is arising for me in what you both shared. Poetry is like making love, not just with language, but with the place from which language comes, the the emanating source that enables language and perception and meaning and the flow that we recognize as conscious life. That's what I'm hearing. And the second, perhaps, dimension that is, is apparent in listening to both of you reading poetry, and, and I'm still with this conundrum, Holly, that you are you're describing, the elasticity of time, and who am I inside the elasticity of time? Am I the, the person that was the conduit of that appearance sometime in the past? Am I the witnessing today of that awareness and I can hold that awareness and honor it from today at a whole new level and allow it to be as it is? Or am I the person that will now use the awareness of today to actually update and bring the poem to a new currency in itself? And I am, perhaps you are, the successive, all those slices of who you were through this elastic through this elastic time and what that that allows. So what I'm hearing here is the poetry of who we are becoming. That's what I'm hearing. The poetry that is the Golden Gate Bridge on which there is the traffic of life that is forever in the transit from who we were to who we are becoming to who we will be tomorrow and later on the other side of that veil. That is what I'm hearing, the the poetry of who we are becoming through these. And and perhaps that is the longing and the haunting and the yearning to forever be in touch with that eventuality in the here and now. 
So whatever way you sense into that, time is no longer linear. Time is a property that has omnipresence and reversibility inside it. We are way outside the easy (laughs) frame to follow, but that is where I will skate with you with your poems and, and what they suggested. Thank you so much for this rich and robust, you know, conversation. It feels like the intention that we had to connect and meander and wander and circle back. And, you know, when you were talking about how time wasn't linear, I was seeing all these interconnecting kind of helixes, you know, and, and I feel like that's, you know, that's kind of where our conversation about poetry and transformation went today. I feel the same. And I wanted to thank you for that poem, Libby, because every poem presents a threshold, you know, the whole process. I mean, thresholds are everywhere. That's such a powerful image. And it, and that fullness, that most magnificent possible interpretation of love, which can show up so quietly. Thank you. So you have taken us today into the, the midwifery that poetry is, which is another way of talking about a threshold. And the other sense that I'm, I'm accessing in, in these last few minutes is indeed how the universal reveals itself inside the personal. So when you are able to magnify those moments that you just shared, where something spoke through you to fashion language in a particular way, where there is a transference of a perception and an actuality and a truth about life, in a way that can be received by another person and, and experienced inside their own cognition on their own, separate from you, the conduit, the, the poet. It means that there was something in the personal that allowed the universal to be accessed through. So that to me is another aspect of the, the babushkas, the Russian dolls of life and how the universal is allowed to be manifested through the personal. So, so thank you very much for bringing that to life here today. Uh, I just wanted to thank you. Thank you both for this opportunity. This was delightful and it's going to continue to cook in me. But the image that you brought up a few minutes ago of Eve of the Bridge is one of the central images of my own sense of what and who and how I am. And it's one of the few that is persistent you know, that I tuned into when I was young and still feels valid for me. And the dilemma that it carries continues. And this is part of what it expresses in poetry, which is being the bridge and then actually getting to cross the bridge and somehow needing to be able to do both. And I think the poems can be, and the beautiful thing about the Golden Gate Bridge is like that image you raise, like if I am the bridge, but I'm also creating an opening for me to cross, well, everybody else gets to cross it as well. And but sometimes there's that tension, like, okay, I'm holding this space for others to be able to make this transition. I'm, I'm creating a threshold for others to be able to cross. But when do I stop holding that space and cross over and not revisit this place again? So I know that sounds a little bit abstract, but for me, it feels like a very embodied, ongoing question. That, a com- that I occasionally express in a rather demanding and upset way <laughs> with myself or with life. 
And I think that's one of the realms that poetry gets to explore. And it's just one we hadn't mentioned earlier, but I wanted to bring that in. It's, it's just that threshold image is so potent. It's one of the things that we serve as poets. We offer, we create those thresholds. And then sometimes you go, okay, would somebody hold the door for me? Yeah, I, that was a great image. And, and I actually, there were a few things that came to me in it. One was, you know, just you know, the, the whole metaphor of bridge building and crossing over. And then I was like, and then we, we need the things so we don't jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Like, <laughs> like poetry, you know, poetry, it, like, it keeps me sane. And I think that's an important thing to mention, you know, there are practices that we, whatever it is, whatever your, my, our, you know, creative expression, creative practice is like, it's so we can cross over. It's so that we can move from this to that. It's so we can transform and we don't jump off too soon. You know, we don't abandon it. And I think that's just really important to, you know, to mention that, you know, it's important and lofty and beautiful and it's hard sometimes too. You know, that's one of the greatest, you know, it's the full human spectrum contains grief and loss and despair and joy and delight and, you know, and we're transformed by it all. And I think that's the bridge, you know. And this feels the, just the right place to leave this unfinished, right on the bridge, suspended. Thank you. Thank you, Aviv. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Libby. And thank you, Aviv. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.